It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Well, it's an understatement to say that Jesus stirred the pot amongst the religious leaders of his day. Today, Pastor Rick looks at the leaders questioning Jesus' disciples not fasting and question Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Let's find out how Jesus responded to these leaders in Rick's sermon entitled, Push Back. This is his series, Experiencing Jesus, Part 8. Let's join Rick now in his sermon. Back in the 1800s, the lawmakers up in Montana made a decision that it would be illegal for an unmarried woman to fly fish alone in a river. Do not ask me why, but it was. And that's just an example of one of a number of old and odd laws that are still on the books in many states across the United States. In fact, some of these old and odd laws were written to control behavior in and around churches. For example, in Blackwater, Kentucky, it is still illegal to tickle a woman under her chin with a feather duster in church. (laughs) To do so is a penalty of $10 in a day in jail. In Edina, Oregon... No one can eat unshelled roasted peanuts while in church. In Honey Creek, Iowa, no one is permitted to carry a slingshot to church except for a police officer. Is anybody packing this morning? I think I want to (laughs) know on that one. Um, No citizen in Lee Creek, Arkansas, is allowed to attend church wearing red-colored garments. Swinging a yo-yo in church or anywhere in public on the Sabbath is prohibited in Studley, Virginia. And turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a church any day of the week in Slaughter, Louisiana. Okay, so understand this. Get a grip on this. There was a time when people were concerned that turtle racing yo-yo players wearing red shirts would sneak into worship services, throw their peanut shells on the floor while tickling women. (laughs) And we, we laugh at stuff like this and we think... Are you serious? How crazy that at some point in the past, rules and regulations like that were actually taken seriously. And yet how many here in the past have been seriously hurt by man-made rules and regulations in a church? Maybe you can remember when someone spoke to you. Maybe you can remember when they harshly expected something out of you or when they tried to get you to conform by some form of control. If that's been your painful story, you need to to listen up this morning because Jesus understands what you are feeling because he has been hurt by those things too. You see, there's a distinction we all need to make. There is a difference between Christianity and church culture. There is a real difference between Jesus and religion. They are not necessarily the same. The Bible gives us Jesus. Religion gives us, or man gives us religion. 
And that's why author and pastor Eugene Peterson wrote the following. He said, when men and women get their hands on religion, one of the first things they often do is turn it into an instrument for controlling others, either putting them or keeping them in their place. And the history of such religious manipulations and coercions is long and it's tedious It is little wonder that people who have only known religion on such terms experience release or escape from it as freedom. Mark has recorded what Jesus said and what Jesus did so we could cut through the religious fog, the caricatures, and the smoke screens that tend to obscure him and experience Jesus for ourselves. But once we do, we're brought to a point of decision. What am I going to do with the reality of who this Jesus really is? For example, what do I do with his startling message? I mean, he's been proclaiming that a divine system is on its way in, and this kingdom system trumps all others in in, in its authority and in its power. Jesus also claimed that if I want to be part of this kingdom of God movement then it's going to require a new direction in my life. It's going to really require a 180-degree turn, something the Bible calls repentance. Yeah, what do I do with those kinds of declarations? Or, Or what do I do about his amazing power to do the miraculous? I mean, by just speaking a word out of his mouth, he instantly healed those that were sick, cast demons out of people. Repulsive lepers were cleansed, and confined paralytics were set free. What do I do with that kind of stuff? What do I do with his audacious claims that he can bring forgiveness personally at a deep heart level? That he can call people to follow him who, personally, I find disgusting, vile, and reprehensible. What do I do with this stuff? See, Mark gives this high-octane, unfiltered, raw, unpasteurized view of Jesus to force an issue to us. And the issue is, it's decision time. I'm either going to go with him or I'm going to walk away. I'm either going to embrace Jesus or I'm going to shun him. There is no middle ground. In other words, no one experiences and encounters the real Jesus and then shrugs and walks away with, well, that's nice. No, Jesus never intended for that to happen. Experiencing him is intended to be life-changing. Now, from our vantage point, our vantage point, you would assume and you would think, as we've been looking at the life of Jesus so far in, in, in Mark's account, that he is such a compelling person, that he, he's doing such an amazing work that everybody would like him, that everybody would warmly welcome him, And yet have you noticed, and we've not pointed it out too much, that Mark's giving us hints that there is this growing pushback that's beginning to happen. Remember the three intimate encounters that that we've been given by Mark in the past couple of weeks. Mark chose those carefully. I mean, who can get upset or or oppose a, a leper being cleansed or a paralytic being given the freedom now to move and to walk? I mean, after all, they're victims. I mean, they're deserving of any help they can get. But an unsettledness begins to creep in with that 
paralytic when Jesus had the audacity to broach the issue that he could personally grant forgiveness. And remember, that did not go over well with some of those who were sitting there. Oh, but then what about Levi? Oh, my. I mean, his wounds were self-inflicted. He made his choices. He ought to now have to just live with them. He's not a victim. He's a culprit. Now, the first two of those intimate encounters, I mean, they were deserving. Levi, no, he is unworthy. I mean, after all, he's not acted repentant. He has not said he was sorry. He has not tried to clean up his act. He has not tried to find a better class of friends. And that's why the religious people started to oppose Jesus, because he was a threat to their command and control structure. See, those three intimate encounters that we have seen over the last couple of weeks show the outrageous and extravagant grace of God and how that extravagant grace of God just blows up the status quo. It destroys so many people of so many people's categories and firmly held convictions on how God thinks and how God's going to act. See, God's grace, even today, is incredibly threatening because those who are not even trying to be good get loved. So what Mark does, starting in chapter 2, verse 18, is he shows us how this undercurrent of disapproval breaks out now into full-blown hostility. And what Mark does is he gives us three quick vignettes to show how and why the religious leaders were coming into direct confrontation with Jesus. And watch how in each one of these scenes, it begins with a question that defines the tension. So grab your Bibles, open if you would, Mark chapter 2. We'll start at verse 18 and, and look at the first stage of rising tensions. Where does Mark take us now? Well, he says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, see, here's the question that identifies the tension. The average person is looking around in that day, and they're noticing, they took note that those who are really spiritual fasted. In fact, if you were really up there, you fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, in contrast, though, the people were watching Jesus and his disciples, and they weren't doing any of that. Now, by the way, did you notice that they did not directly confront Jesus about his lack of fasting? But the inference is, if his disciples are not fasting, Jesus is responsible because he is their teacher. Okay, what's the tension? What's the tension that that question raises? The conflict is over expectations. Everybody else is doing it. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Anybody here ever experienced the power and the pressure of expectations, especially when you've got the momentum of the majority? See, Jesus faced the stress of, why don't you fit in? Why don't you act like everybody else and conform here? Uh-uh. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, we see it in starting in verse 19. He explains it by using three different pictures, but all three of those pictures have just one basic idea. 
Look at picture number one, how the bridegroom is here, starting in verse 19. So Jesus says, Can wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I mean, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Again, his point is really simple. He says, suppose you've been invited to a, to a wedding by a close friend, and that close friend happens to be the bridegroom. And weddings, even in our day, they're special events, uh, a uniquely joyful time. And the nature of that special Event and your special relationship with the bridegroom means celebration is the appropriate behavior. And so at weddings, even in our day, people eat and drink, sometimes to an excess. Why? Because out of their happiness and joy, they're doing so on the basis of the couple getting married. But, Jesus says, just suppose, just suppose the wedding celebration lands on your Monday or Thursday Fasting day. What are you going to do? Jesus says, well, of course you're going to celebrate. Of course we would be flexible. And understand that once the wedding is over, then things will return to normal. And fasting will be appropriate then, but it's not appropriate during the wedding. Okay, so hold on to that thought for just a moment. I would be flexible. Now let's go on to picture number two. Jesus moves just right on in verse 21 to talk about the unshrunk piece of cloth. Verse 21. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Okay, What's Jesus' point there? That mixing the old with the new, can create a problem. What's the problem? Well, the unshrunk piece of cloth you're trying to use as a patch is considered new, and if it's used as a patch, it will eventually shrink and tear away from the old because the old cloth is not flexible enough to handle it. Flexible enough. Picture number three. Look at verse 22. Now he he moves over and starts talking about new wine. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. No, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Again, he's, he's probably reaching back into a part of agriculture that we're probably not that familiar with, but we catch what he's saying pretty easily, that wineskins of old leather cannot handle new wine. The reaction of crusty, hardened leather to new wine, it cracks open, it splits wide open, the wine then is going to pour all out. The old wineskins are no longer flexible enough to handle it. So Jesus is declaring that something new is happening right then, right there, and the old cannot contain it. Okay, what's his point? What are these three pictures all bringing one idea together about? He's saying just as we use common sense in a number of ways of life, in the way we respond to a wedding, in the way we would repair our clothes, in the way we would handle new and and contain or store new wine, where we're flexible and adaptable, 
When it comes to the new expression of the outrageous and extravagant grace of God, if we hold tightly to the expectation of conforming to the behavior of the majority, it could put you at odds with where Jesus is going. Now, to the people of that day, maybe not so much to you, but to the people of that day, that was radical. That was extreme. That was unheard of. And so it's no wonder that Jesus ticked a bunch of people off with thinking like that. (laughs) But it didn't stop there. Notice how Mark goes on and now describes the second stage of rising tensions, chapter 2, starting in verse 23. So one day on the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, catch the question. Once again, we have a question that identifies the tension there in verse 24. Now, first of all, a couple of background issues that will, that will help us. It was not unusual at that time for, as it is even today in most third world countries, for the community paths to cut right through a person's uh, field. It was not considered trespassing, just to walk right through that if that was the shortest way to get into town or to get back to your house. And so Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 25, allows you to pick grain to eat as you walk through someone else's field. You just couldn't use a sickle and harvest some of it. In other words, you could have a snack, but you couldn't take enough home to start having meals on. Now the Pharisees, the religious leaders at that time, challenged Jesus here that what his disciples were doing was unlawful on the Sabbath. In other words, in their minds, this was breaking the Old Testament law and they were sinning. I mean, after all, you did not want to defame the Sabbath. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But it wasn't breaking the law and they weren't sinning. In other words, nowhere does the Old Testament say that you can't pick grain while walking through someone's field on the Sabbath. Well, then why did the Pharisees say it was unlawful? Are they lying? No, you need to understand something. When the average person read or heard read in the Old Testament law that God didn't want work being done on the Sabbath, what's the immediate question going to be? Well, what does it mean to work? So to make sure that people didn't violate the Sabbath, and dishonor God, the Pharisees then designed a whole set of lists of rules based on their interpretation of what work was and what work wasn't. Um, And those rules, made by man, could tell a, a Jew, for example, how far they could walk on the Sabbath day, how much they could carry on the Sabbath day, what they could do around their farm on the Sabbath day. Okay, so what's the conflict? The conflict is over regulations. That the rules control what we do. Robert Roberts has written, you know, there's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. For you always then know where you stand, and this helps to reduce anxiety. But do's and don'ts-isms 
has the advantage, or yeah, has the advantage that then you don't need wisdom. You don't have to think subtly. You don't have to make hard choices. You don't have to relate personally then to a demanding and a loving Lord. So the core of the conflict, and this one, was over these man-made regulations. The religious people of that day had taken a general law of God and then made their interpretation of it morally binding through a whole series of specific rules that you had to then obey. So what was Jesus' explanation? Well, look at verse 25. He reminds them by reaching back into the Old Testament of an obscure story found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David, before he was king, ate the holy bread that was in the tabernacle before the Lord. And the Old Testament instructed that that bread, only the priests could eat it. And you can go back to 1 Samuel 21 sometime if you want to, because there's a couple of important details there. The first one is David didn't take the bread. The priests gave it to him. Why would they give it to him? Well, look here in Mark chapter 2 and verse 25. Because he was in need and was hungry. Wow. The priests willingly gave the sacred bread because caring for human need is a higher law than religious ritual. Verse 27. So Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God designed a Sabbath rest to protect and to bless man, to keep him from becoming a workaholic. Jesus has the authority as Lord of the Sabbath, to give us the proper interpretation of God's design for the Sabbath, that serving the Lord, as David was doing in 1 Samuel 21, is more important than some kind of artificially enforced rest. Man's needs are more important than man's restrictive Sabbath interpretations. Now, don't misunderstand something. Jesus is not just throwing out moral law here. He is simply dismissing man-made interpretation of ritual law that becomes an absolute which then suffocates and stifles people's ability to just live. So what's the point? That when we honor human need, even over ritual law, we embrace God's new expression of extravagant and outrageous grace. But if I hold tightly to my interpretation of God's word and becomes an absolute for others, then your man-made rules, which seeks to control others of what's appropriate spiritual behavior, is going to put you at odds with where Jesus is going. See, we've been given the freedom to live. And that was just another reason that the religious were just ticked off at Jesus. Well, now we come to the third stage of the rising tensions. And I I really love what happens here. This is why I love Jesus so much. Um, 
There's a shift that occurs here because Jesus just wasn't simply someone who stood back and was reactive to to matters. He was proactive at times. So starting here in chapter 3 and verse 1, he takes the initiative. He actually provokes the conflict. Jesus is not lacking courage to stand up to this stuff. So look at the question that Jesus raises that identifies the tension. Verse 1, chapter 3. So again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come up here. And then he said to them all, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. Okay, so what's the setting we have here? It's it's Sabbath day. We're at the local synagogue. The Jewish faithful have gathered for the reading and the teaching of God's word. And in the audience is a man who's got a shriveled hand. So think about this. Uh, What a sad physical deformity this guy had. It restricted his ability, obviously, to do work. But more than likely, it also did some other things. It probably made him very self-conscious because it's our hands that are a part of being social with other people and, and communicating with other people. So every time he uses his hand, it's a reminder, a painful reminder of what he has. And the religious, they're also there. And notice verse 2. They're looking for a reason to accuse him. Ooh, notice the motive of the heart here. They weren't looking to honestly evaluate the claims of Christ, but rather to discredit him. Would he heal on the Sabbath? Again, look at the courage of Jesus. He invites this man to come stand up in front of everybody. And then he challenges everybody with a question. What is lawful on the Sabbath? And here is an important point to observe. For example, look back at chapter 2 and verse 24. Notice the contrast. The religious of that day, they were most concerned about what is not lawful. In other words, what you can't do. Jesus is about what is lawful, what you can do. See, for the religious back then, being spiritual was all about don't and stop it. Jesus is all about yes and go for it. See, the difference The difference is between restrictions and freedom. Now again, review with me for a moment where we've we gotten to already this morning. The first conflict was over what? Expectations. The majority controls what we do. The second conflict was over regulations. The rules control what we do. What do we have now? The conflict is over traditions. This is how we've always done it. But you know what? The Old Testament never restricted healing on the Sabbath. That was just a tradition handed down from one generation to the next. But in Jesus' day, the religious considered healing on the Sabbath to be a capital offense. Never mind that it was a divine miracle of mercy and grace that alleviated suffering. They just blew right by that. So what's the response? Look at the end of verse 4. 
you have the stunning response of silence. But they were silent. Now, understand, Jesus did not give them a trick question. It wasn't like, oh, boy, I'm not sure about that one. No, they didn't like the obvious answer. And so their silence shouted their guilt in this matter. And then look at verse 5. Notice, and Jesus gets angry with this. And by the way, the only time Jesus ever got angry was with the religious people. He never got angry with people caught up in their sin. He never got angry with people who were struggling to believe and to have faith. Why does he get angry? Well, because look at verse 5. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. Please don't miss that. A focus on expectations and regulations and traditions breeds a hard heart that can literally oppose what Jesus Christ came to do. So to demonstrate who he really is, Jesus told the man, look at in verse 5, to stretch out his hand. And as he did, it was instantaneously and miraculously healed. But we're not done. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Notice, Jesus was considered a threat because he was demolishing the status quo of that day. We have our traditions, and this is the way we've always done it. And the threat was so strong that it made strange bedfellows. For the Pharisees to go out and conspire with the Herodians was like an extreme left-wing Democrat teaming up with an adamant right-wing Republican. That's how strange it was. But that just shows the danger. That just shows the danger Jesus was to the binding and restrictive traditions that tried to control people with, no, stop it, don't do that. What's the point? What's the point of this third scenario, a vignette that we've been given? That when the focus of our lives is on doing good, and saving life, we embrace God's new expressions of extravagant and outrageous grace. But if we hold tight to traditions that define spirituality based on what we don't do, it'll put us at odds with where God is trying to lead us in Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that Jesus Christ just ticked off a bunch of people of that day? He touched those they wouldn't touch. He claimed to forgive sins, which only God can do. He loved the company of people that they questioned the ethics and morals of. He didn't fast like everybody else. He didn't obey the rules. He he shattered long-held traditions. (laughs) But you know what? When he does all that stuff that we've just seen so far in Mark, the light and the warmth of extravagant grace was beginning to break through the cold, gray fog of religion. And it is the extravagant and outrageous grace of God that still can do that today in churches. 
churches where spirituality is still measured by what people don't do and by what we just stand against. The extravagant and outrageous grace of God shows us that Jesus came, that we might be known for what we positively do and what we're for. And so in these three vignettes, Jesus basically says, I want my followers never to be constrained by what the majority are doing, by man-made interpretations of God's word that get imposed, nor by binding restraints of tradition because it's always the way we've done it. And you know what? Once you have drunk deeply of outrageous and extravagant grace, you'll never go back. And you can't wait to share it with other thirsty souls. Let's pray. Father, this is not one of the easier passages to experience Jesus in. It's not easy because... We start off by just watching Jesus in confrontation and conflict with others, and we think that's really all that it is, but the story has a way of of worming its way down deep inside of us, and suddenly we're drawn into it personally. We're drawn in because it reminds us of times when expectations and regulations and traditions painfully wounded us. It also reminds us how we have used expectations and regulations and traditions to hurt others as we've sought to control. And that's why, Father, it's difficult. It's difficult to want to face that which has hurt us in the past or those ways in which we have hurt others. But such is the grace of God that wants to lead us to freedom. (laughs) We have been saved to enjoy the freedom of Jesus Christ. So, Father, thank you for his model. Thank you for how even this morning we can turn to you and say, Father, forgive me for the way I've treated others. Father, I want to extend forgiveness to those that have painfully hurt me in those areas and we can have freedom. Father, would you do that inside me? Would you do that inside my brothers and sisters right here in this room? May you accept the prayers of your people right here, right now, from their hearts that want to follow you. And Lord, we pray this in a powerful wonderful name of our Savior that shows us the extravagant and outrageous grace of God. Jesus our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, 
and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.